0: Choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. you got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Might be okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light
1: Hello and welcome, this is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 261 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, Lunar Module Pilot, Fred Hayes.
2: Fred Wallace Hayes Jr. has spent over five decades in the service of his country, both publicly and privately, as one of the most revered and respected figures in aviation and aerospace history. An integral part of the Apollo space program, Fred Hayes was a backup crew member on the celebrated Apollo 8, 11, and 16 missions. Hayes would become a household name, however, as a crew member of the famed Apollo 13 lunar mission, a mission initially marred by trouble, but which ultimately stands as one of the greatest examples of human ingenuity, teamwork, and courage of all time. The Apollo 13 mission was an incredible journey, but it would be only one among many incredible journeys for Fred Hayes.
1: Fred W. Hayes Jr. was born on November 14, 1933. He was raised in Biloxi, Mississippi and attended Biloxi High School, from which he graduated in 1950. Like so many astronauts, he was a Boy Scout earning the rank of Star Scout. In 1952, he furthered his education and graduated from Perkinston Junior College, receiving an Associate of Arts degree with original aims of a career in journalism.
0: Well, I I, uh, got actually into the aviation business uh, not planned. I was uh, actually majoring the first two years of college in journalism.
1: When Hayes became eligible for the draft, he joined the Naval Aviation Cadet Training Program, despite being apprehensive of flying. Hayes underwent naval aviator training from 1952 to 1954 and served as a U.S. Marine Corps fighter pilot at Cherry Point, North Carolina, from March 1954 to September 1956.
0: And uh, the Korean War came on, and I decided to serve. And the program I could get into at uh, two years of college at my age was the Naval Aviation Cadet Program. Now, I had never been in an airplane in my life, but I decided that was what (laughs) I ought to do. Sometimes at 18 years old, you don't think too far ahead. But uh, (laughs) it turned out I loved flying from the first time I jumped on an airplane. I said, instantly, I was on a new course. Didn't quite know what the the course was ultimately, but I knew flying was going to be my life somehow. Flying was going to be involved. Uh, I had served in the Marine Corps when I graduated from flight training and served in two Marine fighter squadrons.
1: After his military service, Hayes returned to school and graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree with honors in aeronautical engineering from the University of Oklahoma in 1959 concurrently serving in the Oklahoma Air National Guard as a fighter interceptor pilot with the 185th Fighter Interceptor Squadron.
0: And uh, just just read a lot of books and uh, talked to some of my uh, leaders and decided I wanted to be a test pilot. So I went back to school to get an engineering degree which is kind of a requirement to be in that uh, position.
1: Next, Hayes worked for the newly created NASA, first as a research pilot at the Lewis Research Center near Cleveland. During this time, his Air National Guard unit was called up for the Berlin Crisis of 1961 and he served 10 months as a fighter pilot in the United States Air Force. He was a tactical fighter pilot and chief of the 164th standardization evaluation flight of the 164th Tactical Fighter Squadron at Mansfield Lamb Air National Guard Base in Ohio.
0: And uh, I, after I finished school uh, uh, I graduated, I applied to uh, actually three NASA centers at uh, Lewis Research Center, which is now Glenn in Cleveland, and to Langley uh, Center, the Mother Center and to uh, Ames Research Center in California, all had flight uh, test programs uh, going on actively. And uh, Lewis uh, was the only center that had an opening. So I went to work with Lewis in 1959 as a research pilot, which NASA calls their test pilots.
1: Hayes completed postgraduate courses at the Aerospace Research Pilot School at Edwards Air Force Base, California in 1964, and the harvard business school's advanced management program in 1972
0: and uh, basically i followed neil armstrong neil started at lewis and eventually went to the nasa flight research center at edwards which is now named after neil and then went into the astronaut program so i was about two and a half years behind in that circuit behind neil and uh, similarly uh I ended up uh, applying for the program when I was at NASA Flight Research Center in California and was accepted and joined the group in 1966. In
1: 1966, Fred Hayes was one of the 19 new astronauts selected for NASA Astronaut Group 5. He had the advantage of already working with NASA for several years as a civilian research pilot. He was the first astronaut among his class to be assigned to a mission serving as backup Lunar Module Pilot for both Apollo 8 and 11.
2: Hayes' career would take an historic turn in 1966, however, when he would be selected by NASA to become one of the first 19 Apollo astronauts. We've had a problem
0: here. We've had a hardware restart. I don't know what it was. Okay.
1: Uh, At 36, Hayes was the youngest member of the crew of Apollo 13, and his black hair and angular features made him seem younger still. Though married with three children and a fourth on the way, Hayes was still known to his friends by the excruciatingly youthful nickname Pecky, a moniker he picked up playing a woodpecker in a first-grade play. Hayes enjoyed flying, but what he really liked about space travel was the exploration, the science, and the research. One NASA scientist referred to him as a drilling fool, a reference to the almost extraordinary pleasure Hayes got out of the geological equipment he and Lovell would use to extract core samples from the lunar surface. The description was not necessarily what you'd look for in an astronaut during the early daredevil Mercury days, but it was exactly what you'd look for in someone wearing a pressure suit with ex luna scientia embroidered on its front. If Apollo 13 had gone according to plan, Hayes would have become the sixth human to walk on the moon, behind his commander, Jim Lovell, who was to be the fifth
2: Apollo 13 will be forever etched in the collective consciousness of the world. For three days in 1970, Hayes and fellow crew members Jim Lovell and Jack Swigert fought for survival inside their crew module and on the world stage. Due to an oxygen tank explosion, the lives of the Apollo astronauts hung in the balance from the near beginning until the very end of the mission. Working closely with Houston ground controllers, Hayes and his fellow crew members ingeniously converted their lunar module into a lifeboat, saving precious energy and oxygen, and ultimately their lives. The world breathed a sigh of relief with the safe return and dramatic end to the Apollo 13 mission.
1: But... Due to Apollo 13's free return trajectory for this mission, Hayes, Lovell, and Swaggart likely hold the record for the farthest distance from the Earth ever traveled by human beings. During the flight, Hayes developed a urinary tract infection and later kidney infections. These caused him to be in pain for most of the trip. Alan Shepard and Edgar Mitchell eventually became the fifth and sixth humans to walk on the moon during Apollo 14, which completed Apollo 13's mission to Frau Morrow. After Apollo 13, Hayes remained in the astronaut rotation and served as the backup mission commander for Apollo 16. Though there was no formal selection, Hayes was prospectively slated to command Apollo 19, with William R. Pogue as Command Module Pilot and Gerald P. Carr as Lunar Module Pilot. However. The mission was canceled in late 1970 due to budget cuts. Hayes was quoted as saying, It only seems interesting to the public if it is the first exploration of another planetary body or if you're having a problem. End quote.
0: Following that I backed up John Young as the backup commander on Apollo 16 and when I went into that I had uh, Bill Pogue as the command module pilot and Jerry Carr as the lunar module pilot and, and uh, I, I had hoped uh, we would get to go fly 19 at that time that was the last mission and we were in training about five months and they cancelled 18 and 19 so I lost that chance.
1: After completing his backup assignment on Apollo 16, Hayes moved to the space shuttle program.
0: I'd gone off to Harvard Business School, and when I came back I went into the Orbiter Project Office. I eventually wanted to get into program management. While there, I was sport flying with an operation that did air shows. We inherited some aircraft, we got them cheap, from 20th Century Fox. They had used them in making of the film. Toro, Toro, Toro. Attack <laughs> on Pearl Harbor. And with these aircraft, we would stage the opening act, which is virtually that. And we couple that with a B-17 and a P-40 Tommy Hawk, and a little rat race and a lot of smoke and fire on the ground with explosives as the opening act. One day, I was ferrying the aircraft, and I had an engine fail at 300 feet, and I got around to what I thought was a dirt field which really turned out to be the start of a housing project. This was a, uh, you know, there were no houses yet, but they started digging ditches. And this was a fixed gear airplane. I couldn't retract the landing gear. And one of uh, the wheels went into a ditch, it flipped, the wing dug in, it rotated over upside down backwards. And I was trapped for a while to get out and receive burns over 65% of my body went into the University of Galveston, uh, University of Texas Hospital at Galveston. And this was incidentally the reason I carried this, not, to, uh, not because it's gruesome, uh, but because, to tell you it's another teamwork story. With a goal, the goal of getting back to flight status, I had a medical team of a mix of the, the Shrine Doctors, the Children's Burn Shrine Institute, who serviced the adult ward, the burn ward at the University of Texas they were going to do the, the grafting and that kind of business but yet my day-to-day was serviced by university of texas staff and uh, getting through that i was in a hospital three months and it really took uh, uh 14 months with physical therapy i had a bind in one knee one elbow and my wrist uh, that i had to work through to get back to flight status uh, they only we did one thing different too uh, we worried about uh, i had uh, needed grafts all the way around my legs, and normally they'd put a pin through your ankle and hoist your legs up when they grafted to keep you from having a pressure point for about five days. And uh, rather than do that, we worried about if I left a gap in the bones, I'd have problems problem flying with a pressure differential with the gaps that maybe left the voids. So the suit actually worked up a pair of sandals with Velcro on the bottom and built a board at the end of the bed so I could just ram my foot, feet into the Velcro, and that's the way I got away from that. In
1: 1977, Hayes participated in the shuttle program's approach and landing tests at Edwards Air Force Base, along with C. Gordon Fullerton as pilot. Hayes, as commander, piloted the space shuttle Enterprise in free flight to three successful landings after being released from the shuttle carrier aircraft. These tests successfully verified the shuttle's flight characteristics, which was an important step toward the overall success of the program. Hayes was originally slated to command the second space shuttle mission, which would have delivered a booster module that would have boosted the Skylab space station to a higher orbit preserving it for future use. However, delays in the shuttle program development, as well as an unexpected increase in Skylab's orbital decay, led to the mission being abandoned. Skylab was destroyed upon entering the Earth's atmosphere in July 1979, while the space shuttle did not launch until April 1981.
0: In 1976, I left the uh, project office, the Orbiter Project Office, where I was working. To go back to the Astronaut Office, I was named to command Crew 1 of two crews that were designated for the Approach and Landing Test at Edwards in 1977. Uh, Gordo Fullerton and I were Crew 1, Joe Joe Engel and Dick Truly were Crew 2, so really only Four of us got to fly on top of the 747 in this uh, program. There were eight flights. Uh, Gardo and I flew five of the flights. Uh, Joe and Dick flew three. This is uh, uh, the one flight I'll show. This was the day, the first time we were gonna release it. We flew uh, three flights to perfect the launch point, really, to worry about where, uh, with with the load cell data we had from the stanchions we knew if we got to this point point, of separated, we'd go straight up and we would drift back into the 747 tail, which we worried about. <laughs> uh, Gardo and I climbed aboard, as you saw before dawn, and taxied out. We're cocked up, you saw, so we're generating lift for the 747. Very unusually, when you're in the orbiter up there, uh, looking out any window, side windows, front windows, you cannot see the 747. So it's sort of magic, you know, it's taxiing out, takes off, uh, They got a magic carpet that slowly uh, can climb up and it got up to about 30,000 feet with us on top to uh, set up, uh, just flew a big rectangular pattern up from north from Edwards Air Force Base and back around uh, to get set for the right point. Fitz Fulton was the guy fired, the 747, Tom McMurtry was the other pilot uh, Skip Goodry and uh, Vic Hart were the other two uh, flight engineers, four people on board 747. They pushed over, and uh, at time Fitz would call launch ready. I pushed a button that fired the pyrotechnics, and we went, as you saw, cleanly up and away. In reality, we dropped the 747 because we were generating lift, and when we cut free, they lost that lift. So they had a tendency to go on that pitch over go down further and we went up and away quite unusual in the high desert behind uh los angeles there uh, we got these uh vortex uh streams off the uh, wingtips the, the air would, it was just the right moisture that day to give that uh, nice picture as we came up and away like any first flight you don't do too much daring uh, we flew basically a uh, Initially, I pushed over to get uh, pre-launch, what we call pre-flare speed, and uh, did, a, did a, fake, a fake pullout, if you will, to make sure I could get to uh, zero sync rate, and then push back over. Flew a box pattern, basically, just a downwind base leg. And then on a final, uh, we landed, uh, the, the pre-flare speed was about 270 knots. And you normally know, started to pull out at about 2,000 feet above the ground. Uh, you waited till late to put down the landing gear because they constituted drag. So you didn't want to put them down too early and lose too much speed. You tried to maintain a little excess speed. These are called high-energy approaches that were perfected during the uh, X-15 program. So, you, could, so you, you don't have engines. So basically your excess speed is uh, what you had to play with to uh, really... Uh, modulate and, and, and work your uh, final landing. we worried a lot about ground effect. It's the one thing you cannot uh, find out in a tunnel, a wind tunnel. Um, all the other parameters you can, but when ground effect is basically how the aircraft is gonna behave when you get within about one wing width of the ground. And uh, we had uh, dispersed cases we considered that would be a balloon case We'd get in it to the cushion and it'd balloon you up, which is not a good thing, again, because you might run out of airspeed before you get back in the ground. And the other case we call vacuum sweep, where it would tend to suck you into the ground with a harder landing. It turned out the vehicle was uh, natural, unnatural. It just was really, if you were set up upright and scooting along pretty low, you could almost just let go of everything and it would land. It's a nice cushioning, uh, right cushioning effect. So you had to have those, all that kind of stuff aligned to make it happen. We really not had that alignment since uh, space shuttle was turned on. I was in the Orbiter Project Office, I mentioned, and the first three years of shuttle, we got half the funding of our program plan. So when you've got a program situation like that, it's similar to what they have, they're facing today, uh, you have to try to make do the whole schedule. You're always trying to hold schedule. So you start taking content out of the program in various ways. In our case, we deleted, uh, for instance, a backup enterprise. We had two enterprises. And we just cut one out, which is not a good thing to do in a test program. You'd like to have something in case something didn't turn out exactly right. We turned one test article, OV99, into a flight vehicle by only doing uh, load tests, up to 80% loads in mathematically extrapolating. So OB-99 became Challenger, the orbiter that later exploded on, uh, as you know, on launch. So that way we bought another airframe without having to build one. We used the structural test article. We deleted a a lot of test articles. So there was great risk. And finally we ran out of uh, ideas of what we could throw out. And now that what happens is if you're inadequate funding, then schedule's gonna go. Uh, that happened, but another compounding factor was the early time. <laughs> so we missed the first launch date uh, by two years on shuttle from an original plan. Interestingly, a landing test, we only missed that first flight by two weeks from a schedule that had been created uh, about uh, four years before. So it held, but it was not as complicated a vehicle, uh, and it wasn't as complicated a mission, obviously, as uh, getting to orbit. Uh, One of the things that was reflected also, uh, in a different way, uh, and so it's a a worrisome thing for NASA on a major program, when when you change administrations. In other words, one administration has turned on the program. In the case of shuttle, it was President Nixon. And now, about the time we were getting ready to first fly Enterprise, uh, President Jimmy Carter had come in. And it was pretty obvious uh, NASA and space program wasn't on his top ten priority list and what he had campaigned for. And in fact, he canceled the B-1 bomber program about two months after he came into office, which to us was an indication of his feelings maybe about aerospace in general. It was reflected by the ground crew in a different way. That uh, morning when we climbed aboard Enterprise and got ready to go up the ladder to get in our operating seats, uh, there were two Polaroid pictures on each side of the ladder. And it was these characters in blue suits like we were wearing. And they had a helmet on. Actually, they borrowed the suit, I'm sure, provided they had our helmets on, uh, the visor down, and a mask on the drape. So you couldn't tell who they were. They were sitting on this huge uh, sweeper, kind of sweeps big city streets, in the hangar. And the saying said, if you follow this up, this is your next job. <laughs> so, the, so the workers were worried about it too, about their jobs. Uh, it would have taken us uh, a year and a half, two years to regroup uh, had we uh, crashed uh, Enterprise. So uh, they, they were worried about that, and of course, we were all worried about that in light of the changing administration, that that could have been the end of the
1: program. In June 1979, Hayes left NASA to become a test pilot and executive with Grumman Aerospace Corporation, where he remained until retiring in 1996.
0: 1979, I joined the Grumman Corporation, I uh, headed space programs. I had a number of uh, initial projects with some uh, classified DoD programs with satellite. And I, under me, the manufacture of the shuttle wings for the remaining shuttles that were being uh, built. And uh, I got to go start a service company for Grumman, a subsidiary company, and ended up when Northrop and Grumman merged, after 17 years, I was running uh, two subsidiary companies that I inherited the one Northrop had. A wide variety of uh, business uh, across the Defense Department, across other government agencies, Internal Revenue Service, EPA. uh had the Post Office uh, training facility. Uh, a lot of Defense Department, though, with air, more aircraft maintenance and uh, base support type work. Uh, so I've had a very uh, lucky, uh, interesting life, particularly uh, uh, in view of being around at the right time for Apollo.
1: In his personal life, Hayes has four grown children with his first wife, Mary Griffin Grant, whom he married in 1954 and divorced in 1978. The children are Mary, born 1956, Frederick, born 1958, Stephen, born 1961, and Thomas, born 1970. Hayes married his current wife, the former F. Pat Price, in 1979. In popular culture, Bill Paxton played the role of Hayes in the 1995 film Apollo 13, and Adam Baldwin also played Hayes in the 1998 HBO miniseries From Earth to the Moon. Hayes won numerous awards and honors. Here are a few of them. Presidential Medal of Freedom, NASA Distinguished Service Medal, NASA Exceptional Service Medal, National Defense Service Medal, the AIAA Haley Astronautic Award, the American Astronautical Society Flight Achievement Award, the City of New York Gold Medal, the City of Houston Medal for Valor, the Mississippi Distinguished Civilian Service Medal, the Johnson Space Center Special Achievement Award, the General Thomas D. White U.S. Air Force Space Trophy, and the Air Force Association's David C. Schilling Award. Hayes was inducted into the International Space Hall of Fame in 1983, and he was inducted into the Aerospace Hall of Fame in 1995, and inducted into the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame on October 4th, 1997.
2: Although officially retired, Hayes continues to make an impact on communities and people around him. As a public speaker, as a counselor for child burn victims, as a board member of Infinity Science Center, a nonprofit NASA partner formed to raise money for a learning center at Stennis Space Center in his home state of Mississippi. His achievements have been recognized from the White House to the Air Force, from NASA to New York City, from Hollywood to Harvard, and everywhere in between. Fred Hayes, pilot, astronaut, scholar, businessman, role model, American hero.
1: Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 261 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 13 Lunar Module Pilot Fred Hayes. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Today, we salute my Patreon donors. Patreon donors give a small amount, monthly, to support the podcast. Thank you, Patreon donors who honored your pledge this month. Okay, had a couple afterthoughts about this week's episode. First, I want to credit my sources. A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. NASA Johnson Space Center and NASA Marshall Space Flight Center. And Wiki. Most of the audio from this episode came from NASA and Hayes' own speaking events. Well, I thought it was kind of sad Hayes did not get another opportunity to walk on the moon since Apollo 19 was canceled. But at least he got to go to the moon. Although under the circumstances, that couldn't have been very much fun. I found Hayes' shuttle experience pretty interesting. I'd not heard the stories he spoke about, so I played the audio a little longer than I normally would there because I thought you might enjoy it too. Back in 2016, Mrs. SRH and I visited the NASA Stennis Space Center in Mississippi. One of the managers there told us that Fred Hayes sometimes visits Stennis on a irregular basis. Unfortunately, he was not there on the day we visited, but we were not aware that he did that, or else we would have moved our visit to another day when when he was there. I certainly would have loved to meet him. Okay, I've posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. We were very pleased to receive 8 donations to support the podcast over the past week. Jonathan P donated above the Orion level and earned his moon emoji. Paul K from Wisconsin donated at the commercial level in honor of SpaceX. Hans Buffler from Austria sent in another donation this week this year and moved to the Orion level. Jim M. from Tennessee donated at the Apollo level. Tom M. from Oklahoma sent in another donation this year, moving him to the Jiminy level with Rocket Emoji. Mark U from South Dakota sent in another donation and moved to the Jiminy level with Rocket Emoji. Dennis K. from Florida donated at the Mercury level. The School Times International in Denmark donated at the Mercury level. And Ian L. from the UK donated at the Vostok level. Our Patreons are now at 173. We lost two and gained one with the new month of July. Our goal for Patreon is 218 for 2018, and our overall donors for 2018 have now reached 290 with a goal of reaching 418 by the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded, and I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange Donate button, or the Patreon link. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donor's page at the level they choose to donate. Now, for those of you who have already donated for 2018, I certainly appreciate it. This week, it is the new official Space Rocket History logo magnet. It's three inches in diameter, round, and will stick to most refrigerators. To select the winner... Mrs. SRH gave every 2018 donor a number. Then she put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number for Dustin Flom. Dustin, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. I was pleased to see the podcast received 11 new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past few weeks, wanted to thank Kelly Klan, KFish14, and Atascadero Steven for the very kind reviews and the five-star rating. And also, I want to thank the 12 other anonymous people who gave the podcast the all-important five-star rating. I sure do appreciate it. Also, I want to thank Ellie Burks and three anonymous people who gave the archive five-star ratings. Thanks for taking the time to do that. Okay, folks, I hope I didn't mispronounce anybody's name this week, and if I did, I'm very sorry, and you can send me an email, and I will fix it if you want me to. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I'll try to get episode 262 out by next Thursday. So long for now.